listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. I like a teachable moment. Now think about the kid coming off the field after a, after a great performance, you know, great Friday night. You know, the, the team has won and, and they've gotten more pass yardage than they've ever had, you know, and they threw for four or five touchdowns that night and they're coming off the field and they're coming to, you know, to greet dad and, and they're excited and he's excited and, and, and they, they embrace one another and he says, dad, did you see that tonight, man? It's more yards than I've ever thrown, I think. And, and five touchdowns, I've never done that before. And he's like, I know, man, that is just so cool. And not only that, You've not even reached your peak yet, man. You've still got so much more that you can do. But son, remember this. And this is when the teachable moment comes in. He looks his son in the eye and he says, but remember this. It's a bigger honor just to be on the team. You know, and his son is standing there and and he's excited, but, but in, that, in that powerful moment, everything becomes focused and, and hopefully that young man realizes that while those individual achievements are great, really being on the team is a far greater honor. When we come to this portion of Scripture that we're going to look at today in Luke chapter number 10, if you have your Bibles, you go ahead and turn in our study of Luke. We've come off a, of last week where Jesus has, has sent off a, a, a larger group of representatives. Back in chapter 9, as, as Jesus is leaving Galilee in the northern section of Palestine, he's on his way down toward Judea, uh, on his way to Jerusalem where he will be rejected, where he'll suffer. He's going to be crucified, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. Hallelujah. God knows that's the plan that he has for God the Son, and, and God the Son has embraced that. Luke tells us that he's, he's set his gaze, he's, he's fixed his eyes on Jerusalem. That's where he's headed. And on the way down, he, he, in the same fashion that he had sent his 12 back in the regions of Galilee as they're leaving, saying, go back and remind them the things that they have seen and heard and preach to them again the message of the kingdom of God and, and remind them that the kingdom of God is ready to be revealed. These things that they've seen, these miracles they've seen, these, these messages, these hard sayings that they've heard, it, it's, it's all reflective of the kingdom of God that has been promised and it's right here it's near it's ready to be revealed go back and remind them that so he had done that with his 12 and now on the way to Jerusalem as they're making their way down he gathers together 70 to 72 other folks that have been following him outside of the 12 and he sends them out two by two and he sends them ahead where the disciples had gone back to the places that Jesus had already been these 72 are moving forward to the places Jesus is yet to go. And so he's sending them ahead to give them an, an early uh, so, sort of a, a, a trailer, if you will, for what's about to happen, who's about to come on the scene. But the message was the same. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near you. The kingdom of God is ready to be revealed. 
And those people hearing that message would know that the kingdom of God could not come unless Messiah had also come. And so baiting the situation so that they would be anticipating the one who would come and announce God's kingdom. And he sent them away with instructions about about how to go and what to expect and how to respond, how to react when you're received, how to react when you're rejected, and and then ultimately come back and we'll regroup and we'll continue our journey. When we reach chapter 10, verse number 17, we find out that the 72 have returned. They've come back. And, and I think what Luke's going to show us here is as they're coming back and as they're excited about what, what's going on and they're expressing their experiences, I think what Luke is showing us is how that Jesus took this moment and he used it to teach them all a lesson. He used it to get them focused, refocused on the main thing, even though their focus was not on a bad thing. And I think as a result of us reading behind, we too can be refocused on the biggest picture going and what we're calling today as a cause to rejoice. A cause for rejoicing. It tells us in in Luke 10, 17 that the 72 returned with joy. They're coming back from their mission. They're going out. They're preparing the way, if you will, for Jesus to come into these areas just south of Galilee. They're coming back and they're excited about the things that they had seen, the things that had transpired. When Jesus sent them out, he told them, I'm giving you my authority to go and preach my message and I'm giving you my authority to heal the sick. Well, it says when they're coming back, as they were returning, they were joyful saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So I'm imagining these 72 are are kind of coming back two at a time. Maybe there was a date set where, where I'm sending you ahead and then after so many days, then come back, we'll meet here. I'm imagining that's probably how they got back together in order to, you know, debrief and talk about the things that they had seen. And so as they're coming back, they're, they're greeting one another and I'm imagining they're coming up over the hills and, and over the rocks and around the trees and they're seeing one another and they're high-fiving and they're excited about the things that they had heard. They're excited about the experiences that they had had. And the one thing that was common to them that they were the most excited about was how that the demonic spirits that were very active in Palestine at this time, how the demonic spirits were were demonstratively subject to their authority in Jesus' name. It wasn't that they were subject to Larry but they were subject to Larry when he spoke in the name of Jesus, when he was speaking on Jesus' authority. And that's the common denominator that they were all just like, man, did you believe that? I mean, where it used to be those evil spirits were, they would scare us to death. We won't be anywhere around that. And you'd have to go call one of the Sanhedrin to come and deal with them. But we were speaking in Jesus' name and it was like they were They were scared of us. They were subject to us. And and we had no idea to expect this. So it makes sense that they were excited. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's like all of a sudden having, having, you know, a whole foot of height and another hundred pounds worth of, of muscle when you're going to middle school and you're facing that bully that you've wanted to hide from week after week. And then all of a sudden the bully's looking for a place to hide from you. And you're like, man, I can't believe it. It's awesome. And Jesus saw that that was the case. And I noticed that Jesus said to them, in verse number 18, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That sounds like a very bizarre thing for Jesus to say in response. You, know, you, you would think he would say, I can see how y'all are excited about that. But then Jesus takes and he throws this curveball at them. They're like, man, I can't believe it. Jesus, we were preaching the, and the, and your name and the demons were subject. And he's like, yep, I saw Satan fall from the heavens like lightning. I'm sure they were like, do tell. <laughs> what, 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 is, what does that even mean? And, and we don't see that he even explains this. You go, well, so he just throws this weird statement out there and they just move on. Well, it's weird to us because we've not been raised in the synagogues. We've not been raised inundated by the Old Testament. These individuals, many have, have grown up and spent hours and hours and hours in study of the Old Testament in study of, of, of God's Word. And I think these guys have a better handle on what Jesus said than probably we do. And you say, well, what did they understand? Well, I'm just going to be right straight with you. When we walk out of here today, I don't know that we'll be able to say we know exactly what Jesus meant. But I want to give you a little bit of an overview because I think it's important given that our culture is so out of whack when it comes to our understanding of who Satan is. And, and, and the problem with that is many of us have grown up watching Looney Tunes and having our version of Satan be informed by the Looney Tunes uh, cartoon version of the guy with a pitchfork and a tail and he's pushing folks down in hot oil down in a red place with fire all around and, and most of us don't even know that that was informed by Dante's Inferno. Another ancient writing. So I think it's important that we try to get into their world. So if you give me just a, la a little bit of latitude, let's talk a little bit about what they might have understood Jesus to mean when he talks about this person known as Satan. Satan is identified clearly in four texts of the Old Testament. You would think somebody who gets so much press would have a whole book, a whole, a whole chapter, a whole section of the Old Testament identified to him and we understand his ways and his works. And honestly, Satan is a bit of a mystery to us when it comes to the things about him that we learn in Scripture. Only four clear references. The first one is found in Genesis chapter number 3 where this one called Satan is not identified as such, but as the serpent who enters the garden in order to tempt the first man, 
and woman. And you say, well, then if it doesn't call him Satan, how do you know? Well, we, we know because we look into the New Testament that we have the luxury of doing so. When he talks about Satan, the dragon, the serpent of old, and we go, okay, what we always thought, yep, that's true. So we see a clear reference to Satan as the tempter in the garden of Eden. The second clear reference that we see of Satan in Scripture is found in Job chapter number 1. Which if you, if you don't know about Job, you may know the story of Job. But, but Job is a, a, a poetic book. It's, a, it's, it's, it's not so much narrative as it is poetic. Now I do think it's an actual person. I think the events are real. But the, but the message, the, the, the writing style is, is in the style of poetry. And we see this one identified as Satan in Job chapter 1 where he comes before God's throne and and God actually brings up one of his servants, Job, to the Satan. And and, and I'm sorry, I should have told you in the Old Testament that what's translated Satan just means accuser or adversary. So Satan comes into the throne room of God. That tells us a little bit of something. That, that the enemy has access to the, the, the throne room. That's bizarre, but it doesn't seem to bother God that much. And so Satan comes in, he's in the presence of God, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? Now, this is way off the beaten path, okay? So this is not in the notes, this ain't even in the sermon. But just think about this. If, if we trust what the book of Job says and we know Job's going to go through a whole bunch of stuff a whole lot of negative circumstances if you take Job literally God's the one that brought Job to Satan's attention you think it's possible that some of these things that we're blaming God for in our life might actually be Things that God has brought to Satan's attention in order to use us to glorify him in the midst of difficulty? You think that's possible? I think it is. So we might just need to take a break before we go blaming God for everything, you know, that he's doing wrong in our life. He might be allowing it, but I digress. Satan comes into the throne room. God says, have you considered my servant Job? Like, well, yeah, I've considered your servant Job, but you've got protection around him. I can't do anything to him. You move your protection, I can wear him out, God. He'll curse you. God says, go right ahead. Removes the protection. That's exactly what we read and find out. So Job is mentioned. Uh, Satan is mentioned in the book of Job. Third time that Satan is mentioned. In the book of Zechariah. Zechariah has a vision of Joshua the high priest and on one side is the angel of the Lord of Joshua the high priest and on the other side is this one identified as the accuser the adversary we find that in the book of Zechariah I'm sorry I didn't write the the chapter down I can get that for you later it's just my mistake and so we see Satan identified clearly there the last place we see him clearly identified is in first chronicles chapter 21 Where the writer tells us that Satan enticed King David to take a census, which was a high-handed sin against God. You're like, wait a minute, they do a census in this country all the time. What's the big deal about the census? The big deal is this. 
For David to take a census meant that he was calculating how many folks he had in total, how many soldiers he had that could fight, how many chariots and horses, and lining up all of our instruments of warfare so that he could deduce how powerful they were to face an enemy. And God had already said decades and decades and decades and decades ago through a fellow by the name of Gideon, it don't matter how many folks you got, your 300 are about to rout the largest army and you're not even going to swing a sword. So for David to take a census showed that he was thinking more about his might than God's might. But the point is we see Satan enticing, accusing, tempting as an adversary. So four texts, but we have a, a, a very firm belief in this adversary. But a lot of what we know and think about Satan, interestingly enough, comes from two somewhat unclear, or could we call debatable Old Testament texts. These are texts that are referring to someone else, but have, have been believed to be an illusion to Satan. On Wednesday night, we are boring your students to death, okay? I'm just telling you, we are killing them on Wednesday nights with boredom. We say, how, what are you doing? Well, I'm just simply trying to teach them how to study their Bible. But in order to do that, you've got to learn some things that you might consider somewhat tedious in order to sit down with your Bible and come to the conclusion first, what does it say? I'm observing the text, but then I move from what does it say to what does it... Students, what is it what? Please don't leave me hanging in here. What does it mean? We interpret it. Okay, that's what's happening here. Four clear texts about Satan, and then there's two... That if I start observing, if I asking questions of who, what, where, when, and why, I'm going to discover in Isaiah chapter 14 that the prophet is talking about the king of Babylon. Isaiah is referring to the king of Babylon. But in verses 12 through 15, it talks about how that Satan fell from heaven, or the king of, this king fell from heaven because of his rebellion against God. And what that caused early Jewish scholars to do was say, oh, wait, wait. Is it possible that in the same way that the, the Old Testament writers may have been writing about people in their time, but referring to Messiah to come, is it possible that the prophet here is talking actually about a real person, but alluding to another great galactic fall from heaven so that the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14 is actually an allusion to the fall of Satan? I think the answer to that question is, maybe, possibly. The other text we find in Ezekiel chapter 28 where the prophet is speaking of the king of Tyre, a, a, a city-state. He talks about this, this one being a, a beautiful one that has been brought low. And you're like, whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute. Is he talking about the king but alluding to... The one we call Satan, and we walk away from there going, 
Maybe. Maybe. And so the common understanding of these texts in the Jewish community was that they refer to Satan. So these 72 plus the 12, when they return back going, man, it was so exciting. The demons were, were subject to us in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, yep, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. It's very likely that their minds ran back to Isaiah 14 because that's how they had been taught. Oh, he's talking about the fall of Satan. Well, then what is it that Jesus means when he says this? Well, different writers think different things because he doesn't tell us anymore. We have to speculate. We have to interpolate. We have to figure out what it is he means. Six of the best answers are this, that Jesus was referring to the original fall of Satan like he was saying, yep, I saw Satan fall too. I watched him become subject to God as well in a different way. Maybe that's what he was saying. The second possible interpretation is that Jesus was referring to Satan's defeat as his, at his temptation. You remember at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? He was fasting. He was praying. He was relying upon God to send him into the ministry. And, and we see that Satan comes and tempts him with three temptations. And Jesus says, you know, as it is written, and he combats the temptations with Scripture. And, and Jesus comes out victorious, and Satan runs off with his tail tucked between his legs because Jesus defeated him. So maybe it is that what Jesus was saying is, yep, I've seen that. Saw that just a few years back. Just a couple years back, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning as well. He tempted me, and I bested him in the desert. Maybe that's what he meant. The third option is maybe Jesus meant that Satan's subjection to Jesus is being demonstrated by his authority over demons... The people in Galilee have seen it. The people in Judea are going to see it. So maybe Jesus is saying, yep, I've seen Satan fall from heaven like lightning and we've witnessed my authority over them and now you've witnessed my authority over them. Maybe that's what it means. Maybe Jesus means a reference back to Genesis 3. When God tells the, the woman that, that her seed and the seed of the serpent would be at odds, but there would come a day when the seed of the serpent would strike the heel of the seed of woman. And in that striking of the heel, he would turn and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Man, I like that. I like that idea. And that's exactly what happened. If not at the cross, through the, the striking of the heel, through the resurrection. Bang. You know, that's, it's finished. You're done. You have no more power. It's seen by everybody. Maybe that's what Jesus is talking about. Maybe it is the fifth that Jesus was talking about the future sentencing of Satan in the lake of fire. And you go, did they have any idea about that? No, but did they have any idea about a lot of what Jesus was talking about? No, they didn't. So maybe it was that Jesus was talking about, yep, and I'm going to, I've seen him fall and I know where his ultimate destination is and that's in judgment. Maybe that's what it meant. I personally think that it's the last option. The last option that I found at least was 
that Jesus is referring to Satan's stronghold on humanity. Satan's kingdom over which he is prince and principality and power. By by God's allowing. But over the kingdom that he has enjoyed for centuries and centuries. I like to think what Jesus is saying is his kingdom is starting to crumble. And you get to be a part of that. That's what I like to think. Now he didn't tell him what he meant. And I actually believe they probably looked at one another dumbfounded and said, somebody write that down on things Jesus said we don't understand. But I really think when Jesus, he never said anything that didn't mean something very pointed and and very appropriate. And I think Jesus is going, yep, I've seen it start to crumble. And you're witnessing it as well. And it's crumbling in my name. In my name. You see, the Jewish nation understood or had an understanding that the world was controlled by the enemy. And that when Messiah came, he would overthrow not only their earthly oppressors, but the spiritual forces. And I think Jesus is saying, yep, it's happening. What you've thought about me and what you know to be true is being witnessed and it's being seen by your very own eyes. But wait, as the announcers on TV say, but wait, there's more. (laughs) Jesus says, verse 19, not only that, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions And over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Like that dad embracing the son and says, Dad, did you see that I threw those yards and and the touchdown more than I've ever thrown? He's hugging his son and he's saying, Yes, son, I, I saw that, man. That's so exciting. And I believe you haven't even reached your peak. There's so much more to come. I believe that's Jesus' response of, Yes, his kingdom is crumbling. You're witnessing it. You're seeing it. Isn't exciting? And not only that, you've got power and authority over all earthly and spiritual opposition. See, when he talks about scorpions and serpents, again, you got to go back to the Old Testament and you've got to put on your poetic glasses and understand that to the Jewish mind, this idea of scorpions and serpents represented things that can harm you both literally and figuratively. And so what Jesus is using is is a metaphor that they will understand. Now, the thing I don't know what to do with is in Mark chapter number 16, verse 17 and 18. I don't know what to do with this. After Jesus was resurrected, Jesus is telling them some stuff and then he's going back up into heaven. Here's what it says in Mark. He says, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. And they did. They will speak in new tongues. And they did. They will pick up serpents with their hands. Why, 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 why you won't do that? 
What's, I'm, what, what, what's the purpose in that? I'm just saying, seriously? But we do see in, in the letters or in, in the book of Acts where Paul reached in to grab some wood after a shipwreck and he was struck by a serpent. Everybody's like, oh, he's about to die. And then he didn't. So you're like, oh yeah, Jesus said that was going to happen. And pick up serpents with their hands and if they drink any deadly poison, again, I'm not sure why. It will not hurt them. They'll lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Jesus talking to those that were his followers as they were going to take the message beyond his ascension back up into glory and they were going to be able to prove that message through these signs and wonders. You know, the problem with a verse like Mark 16, 17, and 18 is that Southerners hear that verse and Southern Christians read that verse and then a Southern Christian will say something like four words. You ready? Hey, y'all, what's them last two words? Watch this. And they bring out the snakes. That is foolishness, y'all. Okay? There will never be snakes brought out at Oasis Church. I promise you. Not going to happen. Just, that's just dumb. Okay? That's abuse. We're not drinking poison. We're not saying what. No, no. I'm not tempting God. But here's what Jesus says. Yep. The kingdom of Satan is crumbling. And it's crumbling because the plan of God is unfolding. The kingdom is rolling out like God promised it would. It's, it's, it's rolling. And, and it's starting to crumble. It's starting to come down. And you're a part of it. And you're experiencing it. And you're seeing it with your own eyes. And not only that, as you move forward, you're going to be protected by the God of this kingdom as you do His will and as you do His work in faithfulness Whatever they throw at you will not hurt you until it hurting you will bring greater glory to him. And then you will bleed out in the Colosseums. You will burn up at the stake. You'll feel the pain and you will be overwhelmed by the things that are allowed. But I'm still in control. And you can trust God with that. I think that's what God is saying. I think that's what Jesus is saying here when he, when he says you're going to have this. Nothing's going to hurt you. Press forward. And even when it hurts, he's going to say later on, keep pressing forward. But then in verse 20, like the daddy who takes the son and he grabs him by the shoulders and says, that's all awesome, but son, don't forget. Jesus takes this opportunity in a teachable moment, verse number 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Don't, don't rejoice in what? Don't rejoice that you have authority over demons in my name. Don't rejoice over the fact that, that you will be supernaturally protected to do God's will and nothing from outside or uh, physical world, spiritual forces, they won't be able to stop or harm you when God wants to use you. Don't rejoice in these things. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Son, 
I know you're excited. And man, what a game. Man, what other opportunities you've got. But don't ever forget the greatest honor is just being on the team. It's just being a part of the group that is experiencing all of the joy. Yet you had a great hand in that, and that's awesome. But don't forget who gave you that ability, son. Don't forget who has given you the, the, the athleticism and, and the coordination. Don't forget where that comes from. And don't forget it's so much greater just to be on the team. Jesus says, don't rejoice in these things that you're seeing right now. Because while these circumstances are great and exciting, there are more to come that are going to be much less exciting and celebratory. And guess what will still be true even in those? You're still on the team. And guess what? This team going to win. This team is going to win. And the lion's going to show up. And he's going to bring all that. But don't worry, I'm not getting into lions and lambs again this week. I found out. Y'all weren't laughing at my grammar. You were laughing at me not being able to keep up with lions and lambs. So I'm not doing that again this week. In the barnyard, that's right. Exodus 32, Daniel 7, Daniel 12, Psalm 69. Philippians 4, Isaiah 4, Revelation 3, 13, 17, 20, and 21 all talk about these books in the heavenly realms. Now, what we like to do is we like to think about them being very large, very old, and, you know, the, the papyrus, you know, that's on them, and they, they open up, and it's these glowing. I don't know what they look like. And not only that, we have to remember... Figurative language in the scripture might not always mean that it's an actual book, but you know what? Might be. The bottom line is the scripture refers to a record that is kept. And it's kept in heaven by the sovereign creator. And in that record are those who are his. So, a believer's cause for rejoicing today might be some of the circumstances that you're experiencing. But even if you're experiencing difficult circumstances, you can still rejoice. You know why? Because if you're a follower of Jesus by faith, if you're one who has embraced him and has embraced his message and mission, and you're walking with him, then you can rejoice today and every day of your life because your name is recorded and you're on the team. And that team's going to win and you don't have to throw for a thousand yards and 20 touchdowns. You're going to be a part of the team that wins. Amen? Okay. But then Jesus takes a turn and he gives them a little bit of a a theology lesson, I think. He teaches a little bit of something as he himself rejoices. Now, one author that I was reading behind said that this is the only place where Jesus rejoices in the gospel story. I, I'm not sure that I agree with that, but I think I understand what he's saying is that Jesus is referred to the man of sorrows. 
And while there were certain things that I'm sure were exciting to him and, and things that were positive and, and, and celebratory, we don't find him rejoicing publicly, verbally. And so he may be on to something, but, but I hadn't had a chance to research that completely and fully. But I do find it interesting. Jesus shifts from telling the believers what they're to rejoice is, and he turns and begins to rejoice himself. Verse 21, in that same hour, he, being Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father... For such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Again, some strange things in here that are causing Jesus to rejoice. The first thing I want us to see is something he does not specifically identify. You know a word that's not used anywhere in scripture? You'll hear folks trying to break down the Christian argument will say to you, you believe in a God you call Trinity. But do you know that Trinity is not found anywhere in scripture? And you can look at them and you can say, you are exactly right. But this Sunday, we were studying Luke 10. Let me show you something. When we go to Luke number 10, guess who we see? We see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All right there. And you know what doesn't have to be there? Trinity. But we've got all the pieces, and that's all we need in the first place, Right? So I notice it. Wow, look at there. There's the Godhead. Jesus is rejoicing in himself. He's the only one that can do that. God is the only one who can rejoice in himself because he is the source of anything. He's the source of joy. He's the source of rejoicing. He can do that. It says that in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was on Jesus. The Holy Spirit was active in Jesus' life. The Holy Spirit was moving and leading Jesus. The Holy Spirit, I believe, at times empowered Jesus. Say, how is that? Well, you, know, you remember Jesus emptied himself before he put on flesh, Paul tells us. So how is Jesus able to do these works that he's done? Well, maybe he, he does do it in his own power, but he's got the person of the Holy Spirit with him, and the poor, her person of the Holy Spirit is capable of doing all those things as well. So maybe that's how the Holy Spirit was active. But the bottom line is Jesus is rejoicing in the Spirit. I'm going to say motivated by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is moving Jesus, God the Son, to begin rejoicing just like his disciples rejoiced in a secondary thing and Jesus had to focus them now the Holy Spirit is moving Jesus to also rejoice if Jesus is rejoicing you think maybe we might ought to jump on that bandwagon and rejoice with him I'm thinking probably so. So let's find out what is causing him to rejoice. We rejoice because we're on the team. What causes Jesus to rejoice? He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
And, and notice before we move on here, this is what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, this is one of the things they had a problem with him about. Because see, when they referred to God, they referred to God as, as God, our Father. He, he's the Father of us. When Jesus referred to him as my Father. And they were like, no, wait a minute now. If he's your father, then that means that you and he are of the same essence. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the deal. I didn't like that. That's okay. It's still true. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Now, let's just... Let's just land right there for a second, because that sounds like Jesus is saying, I'm glad there are some folks who don't understand the message of the kingdom. That's hard for us to wrestle with, okay? That's hard for us to land with. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you some homework, okay? Those of you who take notes, write write down your homework. This is your assignment for the week. I, I want you to look up 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 2, 5. That's your homework. Read that. Observe it. Who, what, where, when, why. Interpret it. What does this mean? And then have fun. Well, you can tell me how, you, how much fun you had. Because the Scripture says that God is active in hiding things from some and revealing things to others. That bothers us because we we like to think, we we, we like this idea of human free will. We like it. And you know what? True. God gave humans free will, not making us do anything. We like the idea of God just lays this out and and then we get to decide everything. But you'd be hard-pressed to to be honest with your New Testament and, and the Old And not walk away from there going, you know what? God covers up some stuff from somebody. God reveals things to others. You go, how does that work? Is he in control or are we responsible to decide? I'm always going to tell you the answer to that is yes. Yes. God is always fully and sovereignly in control. You say, Pastor Kevin, what do you mean by that? I mean that God is absolutely in control of everything that God is absolutely in control of. So it sounds like a cheap escape to me. Well, you know, got what I got. And we are responsible for everything we are responsible for. And if we ever let go of either one of those sides, then we have let go of what Scripture teaches. Jesus says, I rejoice, Father, that you have hidden this message from the wise and understanding. Does that mean that there are no smart people going to know Jesus as Savior? No, that's not what that means at all. But it does mean that those that were witnessing Jesus and had every reason to put their faith and belief in Him as Messiah, but in their own personal wisdom... 
in their own personal stubbornness in that it can't be this because that can't be the truth and there's no way he's the one. I know better than anybody, especially these poor and outcast folks that are following him and he's receiving them and that doesn't make any sense. I know better. And God says, and since you think you know better, you don't know. Now that's what I think. Jesus is saying you want to count on your wisdom and understanding you want to trust on what you bring to the table God I thank you that you've hidden that message from them and I'm thankful that you've revealed that message to children you remember a couple weeks back we were talking about Jesus and and children and, and how he said that children had zero standing in the community I mean, unless you were their parent with hopes that one day they would be a benefit to the family business, then nobody cared about these kids. They were a nuisance until they were old enough to contribute to society. But Jesus is, again, using the figurative to refer to the lowly, the, the, the insignificant, the folks that anybody care about. Jesus is like, Father, I rejoice that you are hiding the message from the ones who are rejecting you And you are opening the message to those who would have never heard it from them. They're seeing it. They're hearing it. They're embracing it. And and you know who those folks are? Me and you. You get someone who's, who's confident in their intellect. You have a hard time convincing them that the gospel is true. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 2, 5. Go read it. But you find someone willing to trust what, what God shows them to be true, regardless of how many letters they got behind their last name, then you'll find faith like a little child that embraces Christ on its face value and receives him as he's presented. God, I'm thankful and I rejoice In your sovereign ways, in your sovereign will, Father, I rejoice in that. If Jesus rejoices in that, should we not also rejoice in that God is in control? Amen. And then he moves on in verse 22. And I rejoice that all things have been handed over to me. By my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus rejoices in His own supreme authority and ministry given to Him by His Father. And Father, I rejoice that You have put this in my hands, and You have sent me to reveal you to all them. And I thank you that you're showing some of them just exactly who I am. And Jesus rejoiced in that fact. Should we not also as well? So we see the believer's cause to rejoice. We see what the son rejoiced in. And then last, we see a disciple's greater blessing. Verse 23. 
Then turning to the disciples, he's addressing the 70, 72. He's addressing them. He's saying all these things. And then once he says these things, he turns to the disciples. So an even more precise teaching moment we've got. We're teaching them. We're using the moment. We're teaching them. And now I'm going to turn and I'm going to teach my 12 something on the basis of what they've all learned. Verse 23. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Boys, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and didn't see it. And to hear what you hear and didn't hear it. You you reckon how many times those 12 in their infancy, in their childhood. Anybody ever pretend to be a superhero when they were a kid? Anybody? Yeah, just me and you, Chad, I guess that's it. Um, and, and Bill. Mom, mom tells me that she, used to, uh, that she used to catch me in my diaper with a, uh, with a, a dish, dish towel tied around my neck, flying around like Superman. She made me, ended up making me a wreck. You know, because what do we do? We like to pretend. Do you reckon any of these boys might have grown up standing up on a rock and speaking to the rock to bring forth water. You think they might have done that? I think maybe. You think they might have taken that stick and held it out over the creek and all their bigger brothers laughing at them because like, it ain't going to part. You're so dumb. Why? Why do they do that? Because they, do you reckon any of these guys ever grew up slinging a piece of leather around going, in the name of the Lord God of Israel, you'll not talk about us like that and then throw it and then break a window and they run away. But they didn't have glass back then. Of course they did. They grew up pretending to be Moses and David, thinking about the riches of Solomon and thinking about the wonders of calling fire down on Mount Carmel by the prophet Elijah. And Jesus goes, come here, boys, look. Based on what I just told them, you need to understand something. What you're seeing and hearing is far greater than any of the things that they experienced. You heroes of the faith. Those that watched God do these amazing things and wondering how. Fellas, you're watching how. You're seeing how. You're hearing how. Boys, do you realize what a blessing you have? Now church, look. Is it fair to say that even though we haven't seen with our eyes and heard with our ears the things that they saw in her, heard, her? (laughs) Is it fair to say that, that on the basis of the rest of the New Testament, we see it a whole lot more clearly than they did? I mean, is it fair to say we got an even greater understanding of who He is and what He's done and what's to come and how we're a part and, and what we can expect and how we can charge on forward in His name for His glory with the message of the kingdom. Do we not even have it better than they did? I think so. Do we not have a cause for rejoicing? Well, we might have come in today going, I got nothing to rejoice for. Everything's tanking. Gas is $9 a gallon and... You know, I don't have a retirement and da 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 I can't find this and that. You go, I don't have anything to rejoice about. Yeah, you do. 
If you know Jesus as Savior, your name's written. You're on the team, and that team wins. If you know Jesus as Savior, you're on board with the one who's in control. The one who has a supreme authority. And you have, I believe, a greater blessing than even the disciples. But if you don't know him, then I don't care how good your life is. You've got nothing for which to rejoice. And on that truth, I'll invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Maybe you're here today. And maybe as we were talking about those names written, however they're written, I, I don't know how that is. Don't have to. Are you on that list? Because you've exercised faith believing in Jesus and Jesus alone to provide forgiveness and salvation for you. For new life today, a, 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 a new vision for your life and all of those activities because you've trusted Christ. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. Is that you? If it's not, do you realize that he is inviting you today to respond to the message of, I love you. I died to save you because you are a sinner incapable of saving yourself. And my resurrection proves that that sacrifice was sufficient. What I came to accomplish is finished. There's salvation in nobody else. Only Jesus. If you don't know him today, today would be a great day just to God, I know I'm a sinner. But, but I believe you provided God the Son to put on flesh and, and to, to live perfectly, to be a suitable substitute for my sin. I believe that he died in my place for my sin and rose victorious over it. I want to trust him. I want you to forgive me. I want you to save me. I want you to make me new. Bring me into your family. Give me a reason for living. Give me a hope for eternity. If that's you and you're sincere. Romans tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Boy, I'd love, I'd love to rejoice with you today if that's you. Scripture tells us the angels rejoice in heaven over one lost sinner. So if that's you, before you leave today, please come whisper or hug me or just stick out your hand and say, uh, that's me today. I trusted Jesus and Jesus alone. Christian, you have cause to rejoice today. You're his. He's yours. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit that is still moving within us today. Who's been given as a source of equipping and, and strength and comfort. 
He's, he's present with us in a way that's even greater than Jesus was present on earth physically. God, we thank you for that. We thank you for the fact that we're in the family and that, uh, that we can walk in absolute confidence. We can walk in absolute certainty. Knowing that you're in control, your will we, will be accomplished. So God, we ask that you'll help us this week to, to, to see where your hand is at work. To realize where it is that you've planted us and how you want to use us and move toward you. God, we look forward to opportunities and we pray that you'll give us the courage to step into them for your glory. I pray for the circumstances that are difficult in the lives of my brothers and sisters today. We know that you've told us to bring them to you, to cast them, all of our cares on you, knowing that you care for us. But I pray through the midst of their difficulty, they will see the brighter light of hope, the brighter light of you, and that they might rejoice, just like their Savior in the midst of trial. God, help us this week. Help us this day. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, Amen.